Welcome to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. In each episode, we sit down and talk with industry experts who share proven marketing strategies, best practices for content, tactical advice, and tales of SaaS and entrepreneurship, and so much more. Enjoy today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's Content Jam Sessions. If this is your first jam session, I'll start off by just telling you guys what they are. Um, they're a mix of interviews like this one where we invite a someone who we feel has a lot of really great knowledge to offer our audience on marketing, content, data strategy, you know, all the stuff that all of us are focused on and trying to uh, improve and add to our content mix. Today, we've invited Melanie Diesel to join us, and Melanie is the Director of Content at Foundation, and she's also an author of a best-selling marketing business communications book, which I have right here. It is called The Content Fuel Framework um, and How to Generate <laughs> Unlimited Story Ideas. So I'm really excited to have Melanie join us today. What an incredible accomplishment, too, to write a book, so we're going to definitely talk about that. Well, and it's so nice for me to see someone holding it because the book launched like days before pandemic lockdown. So I never got to do my like book tour, book signing. Oh. So, uh, you know, faces and rectangles with the book is as close as we get these days. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, that sounds to me like that would be both an exciting part of the journey of writing a book and also a really draining one. But something yeah. that would be really awesome though to like get out in the audience or work with people and, and you yeah. know, talk about this amazing accomplishment. I think it's really great. I have a mixture of books I read both on my iPad or Kindle and physical books that I like to own. And I tend to purchase the marketing books in physical form. I just cleaned my desk, shockingly. But <laughs> you know, a couple of weeks ago on my desk, I had a the Anne Hanley book. Anne Hanley. On, yeah, and everybody, everybody writes. writes. Yeah, I love that book. And that book- Such was, a good one. It's so good. And I actually got that book at Inbound in 2014 when it first came out and got Anne and get her to sign it. And she doodled little glasses on it. I was like, this is cute. <laughs> so now I'll never get rid of that one. That book is one of my absolute favorites. I gift it so often. I think I just tweeted about this the other day. I gift it to people so often that Amazon asks me now, Are you ordered this already on such and such date. Like, do you really want to order it again? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> you keep losing it. <laughs> yeah. You ordered this 15 times. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, and that's a good one, especially for someone who's just learning how to write on the web and looking to add mix to it. And I think that your book actually, I know it would be weird to gift your own book to people, <laughs> but... Um, I think that this is a really great book that covers the foundation of getting started with content. And I think that it's one that I may want to start to gift to new members to my team when I'm having someone that's a little bit more junior, maybe starting out, like here's a really good framework for you. Oh, I love to hear that. Yeah, it's the goal was really to try to create something that would be a helpful guide. I think it's probably a little more helpful if you're in those early stages. But I found that sometimes if you've been at it for a long time, stuff starts to feel like really stale or you feel like Mm -hmm. you're doing the same stuff over and over again. So sometimes at that point, it's nice to mix it up a little bit again too and kind of, you know, go back and see how do people generate ideas? How can I sort of switch up my process and, and get something fresh? Yeah. And actually yesterday I hosted a webinar on how to diversify your content strategy. And one of the things that we talked about was in those early stages when you're starting to trying to pick out what you're going to create that in your book, you cover this 
idea to not start with the format first, start with yeah. the focus first. And I thought that that was really smart because a lot of our customers, they come to us, um, we're a content marketing company. We have a couple of different platforms that you can use to create different types of content, interactive, static, you know, websites, all different kinds. And they come to us most of the time with the type that they want to create first, not the focus. They don't come to yeah. us and say, oh, we have this, we're going to create a piece of content on this industry thought leader that we work with. What format should we do it in? They Most of the time they're like, oh, we want to create a quiz, but we don't know yet about what we want to talk about. And I think that your book now has the foundation for, you know, starting from that focus first and then picking that, that format. I think that is really common for a lot of people. And I think it happens because formats are more tangible. It's a lot easier to talk about like video, infographic, article. We understand those terms. We see them all the time. So I think when you start talking about what's the focus of your content, what kind of story are you telling, it's just that like we don't really have a shared language for those kinds of things. We don't have a level of comfort talking about those kinds of things the way we do. So that instinct to go with format first, it makes sense. But so many times you end up forcing a really good story into the totally wrong format. Mm -hmm. And that's just like, it's such a disservice to your stories, to your audience, to all the time and effort and resources you put into this stuff. It would be so much better to start with a story and then figure out what's the best way to bring that to life. I feel that you end up forcing yourself into one format or one or two formats rather than having a diverse strategy because yeah. you, you're you just constantly defaulting to that one that you already are familiar with. So yeah. I love it. I like to say everyone has their first content language, like the area where they're most comfortable, they're most fluent, uh, that they kind of default to. But it's definitely, I mean, you want to try to branch out from that because yours might not be the same as your audience. And so you want to mm -hmm. make sure you're experimenting with different formats to tell those stories for sure. Absolutely. So we kind of jumped right in. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, really quick, just to kind of give everyone an introduction, right, to... <laughs> I'm Stephanie and I'm the head of content here at Rock Content, but today the focus is going to be on you, Melanie. So can you go ahead and give us like a, a quick little intro to, to you and your role at Foundation? Uh, yeah, so I'm the director of content at Foundation Marketing. We primarily serve B2B and SaaS companies and help them build content strategy. We help them create content and then help them distribute that content as well. And my role is I'm sort of overseeing all the, the content ideation and creation. So we have a really skilled distribution team that makes sure all of our stuff gets seen, but I'm focused more in the earlier stages, helping people figure out what kind of content should we be creating? How do we create a strategy around the kind of content that makes sense? And, you know, how do we then roll this out in a way that meets ours and the client's expectations? So it's a lot of fun. I guess I spend a lot of time in a creative space, which is really cool. Awesome. And is that something that you would say is probably your favorite part of your current role is being able to, like, come up with the creative ideas and build those strategies? Yeah. I mean, in a strange way, I think what I actually love most about the role is not even that part of it, but it's getting to help other people on the team do that. I think that's something that is really rewarding, you know, getting someone who might think, you know, that they're not creative or that's like not my thing uh, to feel like, man, I have so many ideas. I feel so inspired or, you know, hey, I got this awesome idea. What do you think? I love being able to see and help create that kind of inspiration and passion in people for the same kind of thing that I love, you know, to, to see them excited about coming up with content ideas. Yeah, I'd say that that's probably my favorite part of being a content leader. On my team, we have a ton of editors that have primarily worked on blog content. So they're really yeah. skilled in SEO and, and written content. And when I first joined the team, they didn't really feel like they had the skills to create more visual content, video yeah. content. 
interactive content and being able to help them pull those ideas that they didn't even realize were in there out of them is super rewarding for me too. I love that when that light bulb goes off and they're just like, oh, wow, I can do this. Yeah. I mean, and that same motivation is that's why the book, you know, exists. It's that same feeling of when I hear someone say like, oh, I'm not creative or I'm not the ideas person or whatever version of that they have that's kind of blocking them. It just breaks my heart because I know that we all have that innate capacity to tap into our creativity. You know, it's like very sad. But as we grow up, we get that sort of conditioned out of us to, to keep that part of you quiet, to not suggest things unless you're sure it's going to work. You know, it just there's not as much openness to that kind of creativity being shared. That makes me so sad. So I want I wanted to, to give people a tool to tap into that creativity and, you know, hopefully feel like they can bring it out more often. Yeah, I try to encourage my team to take risks. We aren't going to know if it's going to be a successful idea. I don't want to say we don't know if it's going to be a good idea because it's yeah. always a good idea, but we don't know if it's going to resonate with our audience until we try mm-hmm. it out. And so yeah. there's no harm in taking risks, right? So I hope that if they're watching this, they know <laughs> and agree that I have instilled that that mentality in them. But I think it's important, even just as marketers, like we we have to take risks in order to you know identify what's going to make the mark, whatever the word I'm trying to find here is. <laughs> Um, so I would love to talk about some work you did in the past. I was actually first introduced to you, to Melanie, when you were working with uh, T-Brand Studio, which is a, a part of the New York Times. Can you yep. talk a little bit about your time at T-Brand Studio? And in just a second, I'll share my screen and show the first piece of content that I ever saw <laughs> you create, which was in partnership with Netflix. Yeah. So the New York Times, I was the first ever editor of branded content there. So we were establishing this whole new arm, which is now T-Brand Studio, that could do brand storytelling. So my job was essentially to act like the editorial conscience of a brand content team that operated, you know, as part of our marketing and sales and advertising division. So brands would come to us and tell us, you know, this is the message we're trying to share. This is our budget. This is who we want to reach. What kind of content should we create to live somewhere in the New York Times ecosystem? system to help make that connection. So it was very similar to partly my role now of, you know, coming up with those content ideas that fit a strategy. But, uh, you know, I got to work with some really amazing creators there who still create some of the industry's leading sponsored content, leading native advertising. They're just, you know, immensely talented and, and blessed to have a lot of great resources and a wonderful name behind them. You know, they're constantly winning awards, but it's just still, you know, was such a foundational part of my growth into the content space. I learned so, so much there. It was really an honor. I I studied journalism. So for me to be part of the New York Times brand was like, that was an amazing opportunity. However clear it was that I was not part of the editorial staff, I was part of our branded staff, but still wonderful to get to go to work in that building with those, uh, all those talented reporters every day. Yeah, I can only imagine how incredible. And this to me was such a, an impactful piece of content. I mean, the sponsored here by Netflix and, and apparent to me when I first read it, I landed on this experience. I loved that it was a mixture of different types of media. You know, we have this video here that is yep. in the middle of it. And then we had audio clips mixed in as well. There's, you know, like little like um, call outs. Oh, data yeah. Points. yeah, it's just so well done. There's motion and the imagery as you scroll. It's just such a great piece of content talking about a really important topic of women in prison, but it's still sponsored by Netflix and promoting season two of the show, Orange is the New Black. I just thought it was really great. Can you tell me about working on this project? 
Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I always tell people when we look back at this now is to, to please pardon some of the formatting. This was 2014. Full bleed images were not a thing yet. You know, don't fault us for it. But uh, this piece, essentially, Netflix came to us and said, look, season two is coming out. And we know we've got the folks who like the show for what it is. They like that it's a, you know, that the characters are funny and relatable. But we're trying to reach an audience who might be more interested in really some of the harder hitting issues that the show addresses. So people who are concerned about social justice, over incarceration, things like that, you know, prison reform. So that was our task to come up with a piece of content that would do that. And this was what we proposed in some form. It wasn't it's final form, but we proposed basically a, an investigative piece exploring what it's really like to be a woman in the American prison system. Sort of a, a show don't tell way of saying like this show is about very real issues and the things that you see these characters experiencing. Look, real women are experiencing these very things. It's not just a joke or a punchline. Like this is, these are real families, real people experiencing this. And so lucky for me, my background was in investigative journalism. So I got to write the piece, which was uh, an amazing opportunity. I spent more than 40 hours reporting the piece before I ever started writing. So just, you know, interviewing people, pouring through data, all of that, just to be able to put this piece together and figure out what our angle is. Because um, we didn't necessarily know what the headline or the most compelling point would be until we actually did the work and talked to people mm -hmm. and, and found out what the hook was. And the hook in this case is that essentially the women's prison system is copy-paste of the men's prison system and the needs and the, the you know, physical, emotional health needs are, are all very different. And so there's, yeah. that's contributing to something. So this was just like a, a massive piece for us. So we, up until that point, we hadn't created multimedia content at that scale. So being able to have infographics, illustrations, photos, videos, charts, and all those different things on one page was totally new for us and got a lot of attention in the industry because there weren't many people doing multimedia sponsored content in that way. But the other thing is that it was just a, it was a very true topic and we really didn't put branding anywhere that it didn't make sense. We really tried to approach it as common sense as we could and not force the branding where it didn't belong. And as a result, the piece performed incredibly well. So at the end of that year, we found out that that piece was in the top 2% of all content published on the New York Times that year. So, you know, outperforming all the amazing, incredible editorial. Granted, we had some distribution budget behind it. I'm sure that helped. But it was really, it, you know, it was an amazing, uh, amazing experience for us to feel like we proved that uh, sponsored content could be done with the same level of quality and ethics that, you know, journalism was being done. So it's a, a big win for us in internally and externally. Yeah, and it's a really gorgeous piece of content. And I think, yes, it doesn't have full bleed images and all, <laughs> and all of that stuff, but I don't even pay attention to that because at its core, it's still a really great, high-quality piece of content. Rock Content acquired the company that I worked for, which was Ion Interactive. They acquired us a couple of years ago, so, but I was, I've been with Ion since 2015, and, and our primary product is an interactive content platform. And most of our customers were using Ion to create, you know, quizzes like infographics, things like that. But yeah. we were always trying to educate them on the importance of creating a mixture of content. And you can do that in a long form piece of content that has exactly what you guys are doing in this one. Motion graphics, audio, mini little infographics that can tell a complete story in a nice visual way. And I, have, I can't tell you how many customers that have seen this example as inspiration, where I would pull it up and be like, look, the New York Times is doing it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that that is really awesome. I mean, this piece, you know, not to spend our whole time talking about this particular piece, but 
it took a lot to get this piece made, you know, from in the background, there was a lot of work happening around trying to convince people that we should put all these formats in one place, right? There was sort of a, an instinct that we should put video in a video hub, we should put articles over here, only use infographics on social, all those kinds of things. And so to get everybody on board with that, to get the client on board with an investigative piece that was not their normal thing, so it was really cool to see it come to life and, and have it work the way we want because we put a lot of a lot of love and effort into that. Any of us that have ever worked with clients can tell you that we're not really surprised by that. You know, sometimes <laughs> it's a it's a process. I mean, especially if no one's doing it yet, right? Like yeah. In 2014, this was an incredibly innovative piece of content, and not just in the the fact that it was a sponsored piece of content that was investigative, but also yeah. uh, or that followed you know normal editorial. I mean, it reads like you would read any article on the New York Times, but just the format. So I, I think that you are incredibly innovative and I think you should be proud of it. We love that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to to my approach in general is pulling in those journalistic best practices. I think some of the best content, you know, uses some of those those same tools and approaches. Yeah, absolutely. So you did work on other pieces of sponsored content with oh, yeah. Yeah. So what were yeah. some of the other challenges that you faced? I mean, you had the incredible performance data, I'm sure, to share with your clients when this piece was launched. But what are some of the mm-hmm. other challenges after this that you guys faced? And what did you love about working with those clients? It was always great to work with clients who, who came to the New York Times because their expectations were high in terms of the quality of content that they were expecting. So from a creative standpoint, it's nice to be held to that high standard and to have have, you know, sort of the freedom to, to work hard and take time to make something amazing rather than, you know, we're looking for something, you know, that can be live by end of day versus we're looking for something to make a big impact, even if it takes a month. So that was always a, a really great experience as a creative. Again, the team was wonderful. It was nice to be able to work with people who had, I mean, we had like our director of video had won multiple Emmys. Like that was the caliber of people we were working with. You know, that's always incredible. But I think there's always some challenges. I think one of the big challenges is always determining the appropriate level of branding. There is some data now that gives some guidance on, you know, when and where is the best place to mention the brand in those experiences. But we didn't have that at the time. So it was all our gut. And, uh, you know, data is better than gut when you're trying to convince your clients of something in general. But yeah, that was a, a conversation we were having all the time. You know, how much branding is too much? Is it about the size of the branding or is it about where it happens? Is it, you know, how soon do we mention a brand? How many times do we mention the brand? There were just all these different factors that we were always trying to, you know, sort of tweak those levers just a little bit and see, you know, how we could do it that in a way that didn't hurt the brand. You know, obviously mm-hmm. we want to make sure they're getting the goals that they're setting. We want them to achieve them, but we also don't want to scare our audience away. And by the same token, we don't want so little branding that they don't know. We're never trying to trick them. So it was just sort of an ongoing challenge to find that happy medium and figure out the branding level. Well, I think you did a great job. I I know you're not, you're no longer with them, so we can move on (laughs) and talk about what you're doing today. But I, I think that it's incredible what you guys were able to achieve. So let's talk a little bit about content formats and, and, you know, you cover this so much in your book. And I think that one of the things that you did in your book that was super unique that I haven't seen done before in any of the marketing books or content marketing books that I've read as well as you did. I mean, you really simplified it and made it, made it approachable both for someone who's just getting started in content marketing and also someone who has a lot of experience. I, I have been in some form of content marketing since like 2002, which is really just crazy to think about 
because it just makes me feel very old. But (laughs) I still have read your book with the same excitement that I would have read a book, you know, back then when reading Seth Godin's book, when I first was getting started reading Malcolm Gladwell's books and learning about persuasion and learning about digital marketing because it was really new when I first started. So some of the things that you talk about in it are content formats and the differences in content formats and how to approach them. So I'm just curious, you know, thinking back, you know, it's been two years now, one year now since your book launched, um, (laughs) what content formats do you feel are really impactful and provide great results, but most marketers just don't seem to be taking advantage of them yet. And why do you think that is? So one of my favorites uh, that I think is really overlooked is a quiz. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when we think of quizzes, usually the first thing that comes to mind is like a BuzzFeed style quiz where it's like, tell us your Chinese food order and we'll tell you if you're going to be alone forever or like what friend's character you are or something, Right. right? They're more fun than function. But quizzes can be such a powerful way to engage your audience. And I think there's a lot of missed opportunity there if we sort of underestimate what they're capable of. So, you know, going back to the New York Times, one of our our most trafficked pieces of content was actually called the dialect quiz. It was how you, y'all, and you guys talk. You might remember it. Uh, It was a 25, yeah, 25 question quiz based on Harvard linguistics data, where you'd say what you call certain things. So, you know, The things that you put on your feet when you were going to do exercise, are they sneakers, trainers, tennis shoes, something else? And based on your answers, it would give you a a customized map of where it is that your linguistic influences are from. So places where you live, work, go to school, et cetera. So a really cool piece. That kind of thing can be done at a brand level as well. You can use these kinds of tools to... uh, you know, to categorize people, what kind of creative are you? What kind of runner are you? You know, all these things. So, yeah. So you'll be happy to know that um, I've done a few webinars over the last few months on introducing interactive content to marketers. And we talked about quizzes at one point. And I always go back to the BuzzFeed example, because it is true. We are obviously a B2B company, but most of our customers are also B2B companies. And so they're usually targeting other businesses with their content. And so it's kind of hard for them to get excited about a quiz. They usually think that it's really just something they're going to promote on social media and that it's always going to be light because they have this perception of, well, I'm not really creating something that's going to tell someone what Harry Potter character they are. Um, And so we did a webinar a couple of months ago where we talked about quizzes and showed the, the differences in in, you know, what Seinfeld character are you versus the y'all use and you guys quiz. And we yeah. did pull that example up and show it as this really great, impactful piece of content. It's also something that I think we overlook the value of sorting our customers into different products or services. So, you know, it's very easy for us internally to know which product or which pricing tier or which service might be a good fit for their needs. But mm-hmm. uh, our customers don't always know that. And sorting through all those options could be overwhelming. So when you can create a quiz-like environment where they can share their needs, their situation, their budget, et cetera, and then come back with a recommendation of what's the right fit for them, I mean, that's a real value you can give to your audience in quiz form. Absolutely. So one of the things that we use quizzes for is we'll actually test someone's knowledge on a specific practice. And then that can help us send more targeted emails to them. So if I were to create a quiz that is, you know, measure your content maturity, right? And you answer some simple questions about what you do or what you know. And I find out this guy is 
pretty sophisticated. Let's send him our more sophisticated content to educate him and show him that we would we could be great partners. And the other thing is that allows you to serve up as part of the results a um, you know you could serve up additional content that fills the knowledge gap. So if on the other end someone is not as sophisticated and maybe there's some things that they weren't understanding, they didn't get the correct answer. That's a wonderful indication to you that, hey, we've got a blog post on that or we've got a mm-hmm. video on that. Let's make sure we serve that up to them to help fill that knowledge gap. I can't agree with you more. I feel that quizzes are definitely a content format that is not utilized to its full potential. And it kind of aligns with assessments too, right? So we we can create with our interactive content platform, which is this is not what this webinar is about, but our interactive content platform can create multiple content formats. So interactive infographics, ebooks, white papers, but also those logic-driven experiences like quizzes, assessments, and calculators. And they're a little bit, I don't want to say harder, but they are a little bit more labor-intensive in those early stages when you're first yeah. like writing the copy. And I mean, looking at what you guys did with the y'all use and you guys quiz, that required a ton of research up front, right? Like yeah. it, it, it's not something that you could just come in with an assumption. You don't know that people in South Florida say sneakers as opposed to, you know, running shoes or whatever, Yeah, which is 100% accurate. I did not even think about it until that took that quiz. <laughs> um, but that's, I think, is the heavier part of it. But the results, the impact, the information you can gather is incredibly valuable. 100%. I mean, the way you can shortcut some of that is, you know, look for other data sets that you can use. In the instance of that dialect quiz, we didn't go out and survey tons of people. That was a Harvard study of, you know, Harvard linguistics study. So we took their data, you know, with permission, right. of course, and turned that into something. So if you have existing data sets, that is a way to kind of make it so you don't have to conduct your own study or survey a million people or, you know, go out and measure all these things yourself. There's probably data that you already have or that's out there from others that you could combine and create a really cool experience. That's where we... We see the market shifting, right? So we see that our audiences are more interested in content experiences that have a mixture of content formats. That's a good place for us to start talking about that, right? So when I look up content experiences online, it's wildly different depending on who's creating the content, how they actually define a content experience. I'm curious, how do you define what a content experience is if you were to give me the elevator pitch of it, just out of curiosity. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is is really important when you're thinking about content experience is understanding that it's not just our experience as the creators, right? I think we forget that too often, that our intent to create a content experience, our intent in creating it doesn't necessarily determine the results, right? So mm-hmm. when I think about content experience, I like to think about who else can help us define how this content experience is working. Um, so that might be focus groups or just, you know, a test, but Anytime we're talking about content experience, I always ask according to who, right? Because that is, for me, it's all about the audience. And that's, so I would always reverse engineer it based on on who the audience is and let that inform the type of experiences that we build. I feel that with a content experiences, it's really just the, the complete user journey. So if a customer watches our video and then reads our blog, they're going to have a connection. The experiences are going to connect. They're going to make sense. They're not going to feel like they're like, loss. Like there's been situations where I've been working with companies to either, you know, we're evaluating their product or evaluating their tool and services. And the content that I read in those early stages of my, you know, evaluation 
sounds, looks, and feels completely different than the content that I read and engage with when I'm deeper in the funnel or when I work as a customer. And it's disjointed. I understand that that doesn't mean that their product or tool or services are any less good. (laughs) You know, they still could potentially be great products and services, but it's a disjointed experience that makes me feel like they haven't figured this out yet. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really common. (laughs) Okay. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about something that I've been thinking about lately. And I feel like you're the right person to ask. You are a journalist, right? You're a journalist who also happens to have a marketing focus. Do you feel that content marketers should start approaching their content more like a media company or more like a journalist, um, you know, rather than just creating content that's just trying to get leads, trying to generate demand. What are your thoughts on that approach? I mean, I think that uh, every brand, every strategy is unique. And so I'm hesitant to say everyone should do something. You know, there are a lot of cases where you're doing incredibly direct response stuff. And in those cases, then maybe the more branded stuff is what you need. But I do think that if you're in an industry where you're lifetime customer value depends on building a relationship with your audience. I think that's a place where you really have an opportunity to create some more top of funnel content to, you know, teach your audience something, to entertain them, to walk them through a process of how to do something. I mean, there's so much you can do there to to educate them, to add value to them that ensures that, you know, they're going to keep coming back, that you're going to build that loyalty. And I think it is a missed opportunity if all of your content is 100% product focused because there's Mm -hmm. ways, I mean, even that, that example we just looked at, the quiz from Sears, like, that's not really product focused. They're not mentioning the product at, at any point. It's product adjacent and it still does a really great job of, you know, furthering people's down the buyer's journey, right? So I think there's a lot of opportunities like that for sort of product adjacent content that still aligns with your goals, but feels a little bit more organic, a little more honest to your audience. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I I agree with you. There has to be a mix of everything, right? We're, we're looking to create thought leadership content that is more opinionated and has um, higher level of expertise to it. And then we also do the how-tos and the best practices and, and the ones that are SEO focused. I, I totally agree with you. It's not a one-size-fits-all strategy, but um, definitely has a place to do a mix. And I love the product adjacent. Like, it's true. Like, the series quiz, it's not... We're not selling... Sears throughout the entire experience. It's not like right. call to actions everywhere, like telling you schedule it now, schedule it now. We wait until the end. We engage you a little bit. We give you some knowledge. And I love that too, because everybody wants to be right. We, we want to know that, yeah. we know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the other perk about quizzes too, is like people love, like one of the key drivers of sharing content is things that prove your identity or signal your identity to others. So if being smart, being informed, understanding a particular topic is important, then those results can drive a lot of sharing. So, you know, I mean, always got to go after those opportunities for some free traffic, right? Heck yeah. <laughs> All right. So I uh, I want to give us some time to talk a little bit about your book, and then we'll save some time for questions in the last 10 minutes sure. or so. I know I've already said it, but I think this is an <laughs> incredible accomplishment. And so I, I definitely want to talk about the process of writing a book. You know, my direct leader, Pasanya, is a published writer as well. He wrote a really great book uh, a few years ago. And he, he and I talked a little bit about writing books uh, a while ago. It's like, everybody wants to say that they wrote a book, but not everybody wants to do the effort of actually creating the book because it is a lot of work. You know, I've written eBooks and I can tell you that eBooks are not that exciting to write. There's so much work, you know, so I can only yeah. imagine the process that you went through with sitting down and actually creating this physical book. So can you tell us a little bit about that? 
I was in a, in a really lucky position that essentially all the content that's in the book was already in my head and was already being shared in various workshops and keynotes that I was giving. So I didn't have to spend time thinking up the content, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I really had a, had a pretty clear outline. I knew what it was going to look like before I started. So that allowed me to break it down into smaller parts where I could sit down and work on just a particular chapter because I knew the context of what was coming before and after it. Whereas if you're not so clear on that, where it's not so easily organized, sometimes you really have to be more linear and that can give you a roadblock that stops your progress. So I wrote the book very out of order. Now, obviously through the editing process, that's not, not evident, but for me, it was nice to be able to say, okay, I'm feeling inspired about quizzes today. Let me write about quizzes. Or I'm feeling really inspired to talk about history. Let me do the history focus chapter. So it allowed me to jump around and make progress as I felt you know, inspired and driven to do it. The other thing that was really helpful for me is I kept track of all those elements within the book. So every like definition, outline, stat, example had its own line in a spreadsheet. And I would keep track using a color code system of, of how complete each section was. So, you know, had I not written anything, had I outlined it, had I written it, had it been edited, being able to see and track that progress was really helpful for me. But the other thing is uh, I was pregnant at the time when I was writing my book. So I had a very enforced deadline of <laughs> I needed to get that book done and written and sent to my editing team before my daughter arrived. And as anyone who's been around someone who had a baby knows that, you know, they don't really care about your schedule or your due date. <laughs> so it gave me a really good motivation to get it done ASAP. The stat I heard was like only 5% of babies are born on their due date. So it just tells you like how useless of a date that mm -hmm. is. But yeah, I mean, it gave me really good motivation. But I think you're right. A lot of people don't realize creating something of that magnitude, like how much work it is, how much focus it is, mm -hmm. um, how much it kind of wears on you after a while. And, and you start, by the time you finish, you're like, why did I even do this thing? What's the whole point? Like, is this as valuable as I thought it was? But really, when you turn that manuscript in, it's only the beginning. So, yeah. you know, I spent three, four months writing the book. I spent eight or nine months editing, finalizing, choosing a cover, making revisions, planning the launch. I mean, it was a long process. And so it's definitely, you got to be ready for the long haul. Yeah. Well, congratulations on it because Thank I think you. it's really fantastic. And I'm not... It's not an exaggeration when I say that this will probably be the book that I, I am going to be onboarding a few new new hires in a couple of weeks. And when they join, I will be, this is what I would like you to read because our team is very focused on creating a mixture of different content types and, and finding a way for them to work together. And I know we talked a little bit about it already, but I love your approach of the focus first format next. I think that that's an incredibly smart way to, to think about your content creation. The idea with the book was to just give you uh, sort of a tool belt of here are some focuses to consider, here are some formats to consider, and that once you have those two lists, there's a lot of easy comparisons and combinations you can make to give you lots of different ways to tell any story. And one of the things you mentioned was the tools that you used to wrote the book. Um, completely separate thing, but Anne Hanley actually had, I had attended one of her talks at some marketing conference. It might have been Content Marketing World. I'm not 100% yeah. sure, but she mentioned this tool that she uses to organize her writing. It was called Scrivener. I love that tool. I think it's really, really helpful. And I'm not writing a book and never have written a book. At one point, it was one of those things where I was like, I have to write a book, but I'm just, it sounds so daunting and scary. But, but that tool I can see would be incredibly helpful for something like that. It keeps you really organized. 
Definitely. I, I didn't use Scrivener. I used Google Docs, which I know is like, you know, <laughs> sacrilege, blasphemy to a lot of people. But I think almost less important than the tools is just having a system of some kind, yeah. right? So work where you're comfortable, use the tools you have, you know, don't let your lack of access to any particular tool or resource keep you from doing it, you know? I think that that goes for almost any type of content creation, right? Like how many yeah. people have you talked to where they say, well, I want to do this, but I don't have this. Well, you have passion and you have a, if you have the passion and the drive to do it, just start. I'm- I always remind people too, the OG of quizzes that, you know, is referred to in every rom-com is the Cosmo quiz. And it's just text on a piece of paper with the <laughs> answers upside down. Like there's definitely ways you can do it with minimal resources. <laughs> Oh my gosh, the Cosmo quiz. <laughs> but yes, you are 100% right about that. I mean, I'm not Gary Vee. I'm not going to be like, just start. You know, that's not my that's not my jam, but it's, it's 100% true. I mean, how many times did we take that quiz and then flip it over? <laughs> it's or true. make our boyfriends at the time take the quiz. <laughs> there you go. What's next on the agenda for you? You know, are you, is there anything that you are planning or anything that you wanted to share with the audience of what you may, are you going to write another book? You know, what's going on? I am a, a glutton for punishment. So I am writing another book. Um, I am not pregnant. So we'll see how having a different deadline, you know, a less firm <laughs> deadline uh, helps with that process. Uh, but yeah, I am working on another book. More details to come on that soon. Awesome. Um, I'd love for any of you, if you're interested in the book, if it makes sense for you to check it out and see if it's a tool that can be helpful. And I also wanted to note there's a lot of other resources on my website as well. So I believe you all will be able to, to share the link to that. But there's mm-hmm. like headline guides and, you know, a list of 100 ideas that you can just use. So lots of printable and digital resources on the site uh, to help make your content ideation happen easier. Yeah, absolutely. You you actually cover this a lot too in the book as well, where you like give real examples for, let's say you are an X, here's an X that you can do with that mm-hmm. focus. So really helpful, I think, for a lot of marketers. Okay, so let's pop into some of these questions. So we have a question from G. He says, Melanie, do you think the approach of content marketers coming from journalism is different and how? from the one of the folks coming from marketing um, and the industry? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think maybe what motivates us or what our focus is is a little bit different. And not to say it's a good or bad thing, just that it's different. I tend to be incredibly audience-focused when I'm coming up with content ideas. So the types of questions that I'm asking to pressure test ideas is, why should our audience care about this? You know, How does this affect our audience? What's at stake for our audience with this particular topic? How can we make this easier for our audience? That's really the central driver of a lot of the strategy and ideation that I do is really putting the audience at the center. And that's something that, that is you know, very true of journalism. I think the inclination in some cases, if you're more from a marketing side, you tend to focus more on, on the product or on the, on the conversions, on the, you know, the results. And you need a little bit of both, I think, to make some great content. So I think it's nice when you have teams that have both perspectives and find some happy medium there. Awesome. So then we got a question here from Tasha and Tasha says, Melanie, can you give us some tips for content creation in a small team of one? I feel you, Tasha. I've been there too. Uh, You know, it's, I think one of the things that is most important when you're creating content as a team of one is to manage expectations for yourself and for your team. I think especially when you're, uh, you know, a team of one, you feel this incredible pressure to do everything and be everywhere all at the same time. And if you are spending all your days running back and forth between LinkedIn, Twitter, Pinterest, Reddit, answering questions on Quora, writing a blog post, editing a podcast, like 
it's going to be very, very difficult for you to get traction in any one place because you're spread so thin. So honestly, the best advice I can give for a team of one is make sure you have a really clear set of priorities about where you're going to be spending your time. And if you need help, you know, selling that to folks higher up, just explain that, you know, given the results that you would like to achieve here, this is how much time needs to be spent on these initiatives. So when that's achieved and it frees up X hours, then I can take on this next priority. I find often breaking it down as sort of a, I only have so many hours. Here's how I think I should allot them. Do you have any difference of opinion there? Helps them pick, you know, what the priorities should be. And that can be sometimes the biggest relief is just being able to focus on your strengths and your priorities and everything else starts to feel a little less stressful at that point. Yeah. And I also think that we're in a, we're very fortunate for to be marketers in the time that we are in right now, because there yeah. are so many resources available to us that are easy to find and access and are also financially scalable in most situations to bring in someone to support our initiatives so that we can scale our content production. Because the demands that we have on our team now are so much greater than they were 20 years ago. Now the content team not only has to create blogs, but we also have to create videos and work on social media content and create graphics. And it's not that hard to find someone to help us out on a retainer when we need it. I mean, you know, obviously selling that in a terms of a budget can be difficult for some, especially if you only are a team of one, but thinking about what you can generate with those resources available on demand, I think it would be really impactful. We use freelancers for scalability when we need to, but, you know, we're a small team too, a small but mighty team (laughs) on our side. So we also got um, a question from Albert and Albert says that he's also a journalist and he's going to be moving to marketing. And he's curious what the process was like for you. It was a really interesting transition. I think that I've seen a lot of journalists make that transition really successfully. And when they do, it's because there's a a flexibility and an openness to the differences in the type of work. I have also seen journalists who, you know, didn't adapt very well to that change. And it was mostly because they were really rigid in terms of how they do their work and not open to adjusting them for this new context. But generally speaking, I think that I talk about a three-month slump. I actually wrote a piece about this for Contently that that hopefully we can share for you all, uh, or at least for you, Albert. You know, this piece I talked about how you get so excited, you're making the transition, you're going all in, you're learning all these new things. But there's definitely going to be times, and it's usually sometime around the second or third month, where you kind of start to wonder, like, have I sold out? Am I, you know, giving up on my journalistic ethics? Because that is an industry where we're trained to be very objective and very separate from brands. And so there is going to be that tension internally as you're sort of retraining your brain to say it's okay to make quality content for brands. That is being objective in this context. So it, there's definitely some internal tension that will come up there. As long as you know it's coming and you know, you know it's temporary, something you could work on from a mindset standpoint of knowing that like this is a different context and I'm putting my skills to use in a different way. So it's okay if some of the rules are different here. I think that's probably the easiest way to, to make it a smooth transition for you. Awesome. Thank you for that. And we will go ahead and share that link. Thank you for sharing that contently article with us here. So I have just one last question. I know that you you shared your link to your website and we'll go ahead and, and we'll all start following there and get a, <laughs> get a feel for your the content that you're creating. But do you have any advice before we hop off for marketers who want to learn more about creating content experiences and 
I'm hoping that you say it's on your site, but do you have any advice <laughs> or places for people that maybe want to expand a little bit on their knowledge there? Yeah. I mean, I think there are so many good resources uh, for learning more about content. I mean, some of my favorite, I love checking out the work that's being done over at uh, Content Marketing Institute. Mm -hmm. uh, Social Media Examiner has a lot of great resources for learning more about this stuff. Um, our pals over at HubSpot have tons of resources in terms of uh, both sales and marketing side of things. Gosh, there are so many great resources out there. I think if you start to insert yourself into those communities and those those publishers, you'll start to catch on to even more names and podcasts, you know, and books that, that you should explore. Definitely check out Anne Hanley's book, Everybody Writes, mm -hmm. um, and her first book, Content Rules, as well. Joe Polizzi is uh, the founder of the Content Marketing Institute, and he's written some great books on content as well. There's amazing resources out there. Uh, you know, like you said, Stephanie, we're so lucky to live in a time where we have access to all of these things. And in many cases, we have free access to all of these things. So it's mm -hmm. a, a really great place to be. I would just say follow your curiosity and, uh, you know, make a lot of bookmarks because you're always going to want to go back to things that, that inspired you some point in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of Joe Polizzi, um, that is a good closer for us. Um, before I mention that, I do want to say that, yes, we will be sending the recording to everyone. Um, you will be able to reference this in the future. We do have a ton of other jam sessions that we've done. We've interviewed Joe Polizzi in the past, Robert Rose, also the founder of content or one of yep. the innovators with Content Marketing Institute, uh, Mark Organ. I mean, a ton. Uh, we're going to go ahead and paste the link to where you can see all of the jam sessions that we've done. And we have a jam session coming up on May 25th, another one with Joe Polizzi to talk about his new book. I believe he's updating Content Inc., his original book with new uh, ideas and innovation and strategy suggestions. So I'm really excited about welcoming him back to the jam sessions to talk about that. So I can't thank you enough, Melanie, for joining me today and, and telling us all about your wonderful book and letting me glow on you a little bit. <laughs> it was really great to have, a, have this conversation. And thank you guys all for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you in the next Jam session. Did you want to um, mention anything like um, besides your website, like a Twitter podcast? Yeah, you can, you can feel free to, to find me on social. If you search for Melanie Diesel, you'll, you'll find me. There's only one of me. I spend the most time on Twitter. So I'd love to connect with you there and, and talk oh, shop. <laughs> Love me some Twitter. All right. Well, thank you guys. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks for listening to Rock Content's Jam Session podcast series. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to receive our latest episodes. We'll see you next week.